significant changes are happening in Major League Baseball. Are these changes good or bad? Traditions are valuable, but they can hinder us. But relinquishing them hastily may be detrimental. Welcome to In the Bullpen with Mark Dewey, sponsored by Developing Contenders Ministries. You're listening to the Fight Laugh Feast Network. Thank you for joining us. And look who's coming up. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. We are coming down to the final weeks of Major League Baseball's regular season. And a lot is happening from day to day both from a team standpoint as well as individuals. A story that was, I would say, somewhat under the radar that came to an end, if you will, yesterday was the starting pitcher for the Arizona Diamondbacks, Zach Gallen. He went into yesterday's start having thrown 41 and a third consecutive scoreless innings. That is quite a streak. Yesterday, he had to try to continue that streak in Colorado. Talk about a daunting task. But he faced the Rockies in that game and retired the first nine batters. But then in the fourth inning, he gave up runs and his streak was snapped, ending at 44 and a third consecutive scoreless innings. So Zach Gallen fell short of the record, Major League Baseball's record, set by Oral Hershiser back in 1988 when he threw 59 consecutive scoreless innings. But Zach ended up with the longest streak in Diamondbacks history and the seventh longest streak in Major League Baseball history. And records are being pursued. There's the individual aspect of things, and some records potentially at least from a team standpoint as well. But a major record is being pursued by Aaron Judge. Now, he did not hit a home run yesterday, so he is at 55. And of course, the record he is pursuing is not the Major League Baseball record of 73, by Barry Bonds, that's not going to happen, but the American League record, which would also be a New York Yankee record. Will he get to 62? We're waiting to see that over these final three weeks. Between now and the end of the regular season, we may see, and I believe we will see, a two-decade playoff drought come to an end. The Seattle Mariners, I believe, will make the postseason. As a matter of fact, I believe the six American League teams are set for the postseason as it regards who will be in. The seating or the rankings of them are yet to be determined. But the Mariners, I believe, are going to end that 20-year or 21-year drought of not making the postseason. Another team that appears to be locked into the postseason, locked into the National League Central title, are the St. Louis Cardinals. And they had a comeback victory yesterday in Pittsburgh. They were losing 2-0 going into the ninth, and they won that game 4-3. They took a 3-2 lead when a Cardinal player hit his 18th home run of the season. And, by the way, his 697th career home run. Albert Pujols is now all alone in fourth place for the most home runs in Major League Baseball history, career home runs. He had been tied with Alex Rodriguez. He is now all alone behind Bonds, Aaron, and Ruth. Now, I read this yesterday. It's not surprising, but I still think it's interesting. 
Pujols has homered off of all 30 Major League Baseball teams. He's homered in each of the nine spots in the lineup. He's homered in every inning and on every day of the week and during every count of an at-bat. Like I said, in one sense, when you hit 697, not surprising. But it is interesting. Speaking of home runs... And Trout to deep left, headed towards the Crawford boxes, and gone. Mike Trout with a three-run home run, and he's now homered in six straight games. A new Angels franchise record. Tied Bobby Bonds last night, passes him tonight. So Mike Trout, that was on Saturday, as you heard, passed Bobby Bonds, set an Angels franchise record. Now, if you're a baseball fan, you're very familiar with Bobby Bonds. If you're not such a big fan, or if you're younger, you might say, wait a second, did they mean Barry? No, no, no. First of all, Barry never played for the Angels. Bobby, Barry's father, was also a great baseball player. Not Hall of Fame caliber like his son, but nonetheless, very, very good. And so Mike Trout, and it's interesting, with all that's going on, Mike Trout, who's having a phenomenal season, is kind of flying under the radar because of Judge and Otani, Otani his teammate. But that set an Angels franchise record. Now, Trout, with that on Saturday, was still too shy of the Major League record, the most consecutive games where a home run was hit, which is eight. Three people have done that, Dale Long, Don Mattingly, and Ken Griffey Jr. Now, Trout's streak did not continue yesterday, but neither did it end. He didn't play. And the Angels have an off day today. So tomorrow, Trout will try to continue that streak, see if he can match and maybe even surpass the record of eight consecutive games hitting a home run. So we're going to follow these record chases, these playoff races in the weeks to come as we wind down the regular season. But today I want to look at really the bigger picture. The game of baseball historically as it stands today, and where it may be going in the future, and in particular, Major League Baseball. But first, I want to say something about a a topic I brought up last week. And a lot of people a week ago thought it would be a while before we got this far down the road. But a lot has happened in just a matter of days. On Friday, Jeff Prasson tweeted out, Major League Baseball will voluntarily recognize minor league players' efforts to unionize with the Major League Baseball Players Association. That's according to Rob Manfred. He has said, we will recognize it. And then passing continues, the rapid timeline for minor leaguers to join the MLBPA has now hastened. Huge news for the entire sport. I agree. And as I mentioned last week, I believe overall it is good news. So this is something that is changing, that I think is changing for the better. That overall it will improve not only the lifestyle of minor league baseball players, but the game itself. But as I mentioned last week, there are going to be some consequences that aren't so great. We'll have to wait and see how this all unfolds. But good with some hesitation, maybe not hesitation, but realizing Major League Baseball is probably going to make some decisions that aren't so good for the game. But whether it's this issue or anything else, we have to think clearly about the way things have been, the way things are, and what may be the consequences as we make changes. When we have traditions, and traditions, in my opinion, are good, 
when our traditions are challenged and then ultimately changed, we have to think about them. We have to consider the changes, especially if the, tr- the changes, if the traditions that, that are no longer in place go against all we've known or appreciated. And of course, here we're talking about the game of baseball. It can be applied to a lot of other areas as well. But what we shouldn't do is just have knee-jerk responses to these changes. We ought to give careful thought and consideration. It's the idea applied now to baseball that I live my life by. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ and think through things. Don't hold tenaciously to something if it's contrary to the Word of God. But at the same time, be sure that we're not giving up things that are true to the Word of God or that flow from the Word of God. And I simply apply that to what's going on in the game of baseball at all levels, but in particular at Major League Baseball. Now, several years ago, when I was working with the Brewers, all of the coordinators, managers, and coaches had to give a presentation during spring training to the remainder of the player development staff. So each person would stand up. I think it was about a 10-minute or so presentation among all of the other player development staff and give a presentation. So an infield coordinator might give something about infield play, a manager about managing decisions and the like. And so the title that I had of this presentation, we did this for, I'm going to say four or five years, but this particular year, the title of my presentation was the same as the title of this episode of In the Bullpen. And as I stood before my peers back then, and again, this was maybe 2015, 2016, before I even said a word, I had this video, or two and a half minutes of this movie clip, played on a screen next to me for everybody to see. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here, in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. You may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? Well, we stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition! of our traditions we've kept our balance for many many years here in Anatevka we have traditions for everything how to sleep how to eat how to work how to wear clothes 
For instance, we always keep our heads covered and always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. So, of course, you only heard the audio of that. The people in the room got to hear the audio and see the video as well. They saw the movie clip. And so after that ended, I began giving my presentation. And I worked from that clip. I drew from the movie, but especially from the lead character, Tevia. And I pointed out to the player development staff of the Brewers at the time that Tevia, because I didn't know how many of them had seen the movie, but that Tevia was a man that had a lot of traditions, many traditions. But he also had three daughters. And each of those daughters, to varying degrees, challenged Tevia's traditions. And they forced Tevia to think through important questions. Which traditions could be relinquished without compromising what the good book says? Which traditions were contrary to truth? Which traditions should be held on to tenaciously, lest we deny or he deny everything he believed in? And then I said, we too, in this game, are like a fiddler on the roof. We're trying to keep our balance as we work to develop professional baseball players and as we are seeking to help develop a championship organization. And I said, we can fall off one side of the roof or the other, both at great peril. One way is to hold fast to our traditions in this game if they're obviously detrimental to the best purpose for a player or the game or our organization. Or, for that matter, even if they're good, but there's a better way. We can't just hold on to them for the sake of tradition. On the other hand, we can fall off the other side of the roof to our peril by, and and break our necks, by just disregarding what has been handed down to us for decades, really for 150 years, handed down by very wise and intelligent baseball people. And then I said, So we might ask ourselves, or maybe somebody else might ask us, so why do we stay up on the roof if it's so dangerous? And I say, well, because baseball is our home. It's our calling. We love this game. It's our national pastime. We are involved in it. It is our favorite sport, and not only that, it is the best sport. And then I went on to talk about how we could emulate Tevia in four different ways that I believe would be beneficial for us, as coaches and managers, coordinators and developers, as well as for our players and for the organization, and I'll add now even for the game of baseball. I said, one, we can learn from Tevia's honesty. If we're asked, how did this tradition get started? Sometimes if we're honest, we have to say, "Um, I don't know. And like Tevia, we have to think about our traditions and we have to realize this. As he said, our old ways were once new weren't they? We have to keep that in mind. But then I said this, let's kind of reverse things. And we have to say this as well. And we have to admit this as well. And this is especially for the young people. We have to admit that some ways considered new by this generation are actually very old. It's just a new package or a new way of looking at things. 
And then I talked about the fact that we could learn from Tevia with thoughtfulness and a willingness to change when we saw there was a better way. Not only did Tevia have his three daughters challenge him, but a young man who married one of his daughters. And this young man was considered a young radical by Tevia and all in his generation. But as he challenged them, Tevia took it to heart and thought through it. And Tevia was challenged by all three of his daughters. And in the case of the oldest two daughters, when he was first challenged as it regarded his tradition, his immediate response was, unheard of, absurd, unthinkable. Who do you think you are? Not here, not now, tradition. But then as we watch the movie, he continues the conversation with himself. And he muses and he says, on the other hand, and in both cases, Tevia came to realize that what they were asking may have been contrary to tradition, but may have presented a better way. Tevia didn't simply react. I guess he did react, but then he took time to contemplate, to ruminate, to chew the cud. And I, I reminded all of us there in that room that it's easy to get a taste of something that is new and immediately spit it out as disgusting. On the other hand, it's also easy to swallow every fresh idea that comes through the internet, blog post, or anything else that's put on our plate, and not to have any discernment at all. And I said, like Tevya, we have to distance ourselves from our traditions to think more clearly. Hold to them, but hold to them thoughtfully. Think clearly. Remove ourselves from our personal preferences and say, is this tradition good? Even if it's good, is there a better way? And then also we could learn from Tevia by having both conviction and a willingness to stand firm when compromise would prove detrimental. And then finally, we needed to have courage, that it takes courage to do what's best, especially when we act or have to make decisions or move in a direction contrary to what we have done in the past and when we'll be ridiculed by a lot of people for doing so. And then as I ended the near or near the end of my conversation, my presentation, I guess, I said that we have got to emulate Tevia. We cannot be like arrogant teenagers who think that all wisdom ends with us and our peers. That's immature. That's childish. It's Rehoboam-like. But neither can we simply unquestionably accept everything we've been told, everything we've done. Right, The gray-headed are not always wise. Superstar players, coaches, managers aren't always the best source of knowledge. They are not infallible. We have to remember that what has always been done is not necessarily right or best. It's not. But we need to have humility. We need to receive what has been handed down to us by coaches and mentors. But diligently, we have to demand asking Is this true? Is it accurate? Is it best? And I said, even Hall of Fame managers, players, the best coaches ever to be a part of this game, the best reporters, if you want to throw those in, the best writers about the game are fallible human beings. And they have taught both good and bad ideas. And so we can find those who both held to and rejected tradition in a way that hurt themselves and others in the game. And we can also find those who moved beyond tradition to make themselves, the players, the game better. So that was my presentation. In some, at least, I had a little bit more to say than that. Now, here's a very interesting aspect of that. Again, it was, I think, 2015. 
when I gave this presentation and the way I gave it, I was pushing the envelope at the time for new things. For saying, you know what, there are some traditions we need to let go of. There are some things that need to change. But talk about change. Quickly, things changed so that my presentation pushing the envelope in a matter of years became, I was stuck in my ways. I'm not alone in that. And the reason this all got brought to my mind this week, the reason that I brought it to your attention in this episode, is because of an interview that I heard last week, on Tuesday, as a matter of fact, on Starkville. Jason Stark and Doug Glanville had Joe Madden on as a guest. And the interview with Joe Madden lasted for more than 50 minutes. And about 80%, maybe more, dealt with a single topic. So Jason Stark sets up the interview with Joe Madden by asking him this question. Let's start here. Yeah, you were one of the managers at the forefront of using data and information as innovatively as anybody in the game. And now you're pushing back at the way data and information are imposed on the game and on the people managing the game. So why don't you start by telling us what you think has changed and what bothers you the most? So Jason Stark wants to move Joe Madden in a direction, but notice how he's got to make sure everybody recognizes that Joe Madden hasn't been an old curmudgeon as it regards data and analytics. Joe Madden embraced it. He embraced it long before many others in the game of baseball embraced it. And yet, Joe Madden is now saying that he has a significant issue with it. And he says it's not the data and analytics per se. It's not the information. He is all for that. His problem is how it is being used or implemented. Position. Uh, I still love the information. I uh, utilize the information. Information's good. It's the imposition. I mean, it's to the point now where um, I, our, actually our general manager and had an analytical guy was dressing in the coach's room. I mean, that shouldn't occur. Um, there's, it's imposition. I believe this. Okay, I want analytics. Uh, when I, if I ever were to run a team or if I manage again, um, I'd like to be able to have the authority, but I want analytics. I want, okay, Jason Stark, you're in charge of uh, setting up our defense. Great. But I also want uh, Mike Gallego with you in that room and when you guys sit down and you're going to set up the defenses for the Oakland A's, it's not just you telling Mike to do what to do. I want Mike in there also. He's the head defensive coach on this team. So once you guys have sat down and gone through each player on the other team and decided this is how we're going to set up third, short, second, et cetera, the analytical dude, you go back to your office and get ready for the next team. Okay, that's your job. Your jo- analytics, to me, that's just one, that's just one uh, example. It could also be done with pitching. I want analytical people on my staff, but I, I don't want them in the dugout. I don't want them in the clubhouse. I want them to do their job, give the work to the coaches, and let the coaches then teach the players. I don't need presenters in the dugout. I don't need presenters in the clubhouse. Uh, all these people really do know is what they are able to um, extrapolate from this machine uh, by, by uh, putting data in it. But they, it's getting to the point where their uh, impact or authority is exceeding that of a coach. And that's what I think is wrong. There is a lot there. And one of the things I want to highlight is that there is a big difference between being a presenter and a teacher. Good coaches are at the very heart of their being teachers. 
But what Joe Madden is saying, and what I've witnessed myself, is that many good teachers are now being hindered from teaching. Or in some cases, there are those who do not know how to teach as they ought to. Just this morning, prior to recording this, my family and I were listening to a lecture, uh, part of the Systematic Theology lecture, the Foundations of Dr. R.C. Sproul. And Dr. R.C. Sproul was a man who could take deep theological concepts, lofty philosophical thoughts, and bring them down in such a way that average people like you and me could understand them. He was a master teacher. Great coaches have the ability to take all of the information available to them, including all of the data and analytics, and distill it down to figure out how is it now that I convey this to my players, my pitcher, my hitter, whatever it might be. But those who are good at that are being hindered, and so many now don't know how to do that. I remember watching some video during spring training, and there were a group of pitchers, Depending on the facility, you have a 6-pack or an 8-pack or a 10-pack. not sure if anybody has a 12-pack. And that is talking about all of the mounds lined up together. You can only have this at a spring training complex. So there were 6, 8, 10 pitchers throwing bullpens. And I was watching the video. And they would throw a pitch. And I saw that as soon as the pitch hit the catcher's glove, all of the pitching coaches that were along with these pitchers, and there wasn't a one-to-one correspondence, but there were at least four or five pitching coaches, as soon as the pitch hit the catcher's glove, they looked down at their iPad to see spin rate and all the things that show up on that iPad through the Rapsodo or the B1 unit, whatever it might be. And I thought to myself, you have got to be kidding me. Not because I don't think what's on that screen isn't important. I think it is important. But goodness gracious, if you're a coach, you need to be looking far more at your pitcher, far more into your pitcher's eyes than into a computer screen. Because there is a lot you can learn by looking in his eyes, watching his body language. Now, Joe Madden discussed the fact that there's an overload of information, and it's not just on the players, but even on guys like him, a manager. He said that he was told how he must use his bullpen. And he says the game becomes very cloudy when you have a load of opinions And he says, these opinions may or may not be helpful. Now, there's been a long time saying in baseball, paralysis by analysis. And Joe Madden is saying, this is exactly what is taking place. And then later on in the interview, he expounds on and kind of summarizes his first response. If I could just consolidate this. Yes, I'm into analytics. I've never been against it. I'm not into the way it's being the imposition right now, where... The analytical component of the game is gaining way more power than a coach and a Larry Boa or uh, Marcel Latchman or all these stellar uh, coaches who are really in charge of passing the game on to me. And then I'm in charge of passing it on to the next group of coaches. But I'm not getting that opportunity. There's not that opportunity. It's being um, it's being circumvented by information and data by baseball operations people who really never understood the game and don't know how to play the game, but they are in charge. And because of that, that's how the system is being run. And that's why, final point, every team looks the same. It's, it's, it's a socialistic version of baseball. Now, I was driving around town when I was listening to this interview, 
And when he said the words, it's a socialistic version of baseball, I almost drove off the road. I think it says it quite well, however. It's a very long interview. Again, I would recommend you listen to the whole thing. It was on Starkville a week ago or Tuesday last week with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. Now, I've given my summary of data and analytics in the past. I will do so again, and I will add something that I've always believed, but the Madden interview really brought it out even more. I believe data and analytics are very valuable, but they are not infallible. I also believe data and analytics are very valuable, but they're not more valuable than the person you are seeking to help with data and analytics. And then I will add something I've always believed, but I'm going to add it to those two statements. Data and analytics are very valuable, but a good manager or coach should be the one conveying this data and analytic information to the players. In the remainder of the interview, Madden said a lot of things. He said he believes there's no individuality left in the game, no character. He described it as uninteresting. He said he thinks we've been sold a bill of goods in a lot of ways. And he said, the game of baseball is about making adjustments. I believe that wholeheartedly. It's what I've been taught. It's what I have seen. And he says, today, there's a lack of ability to make adjustments. And then sadly, and I really hope he's wrong, he said he doesn't believe that this trend will be reversing any time soon. So the question, of course, is this an accurate assessment? And if his assessment is accurate, Is this trend good or bad for the game? He obviously thinks it's bad. I think it's bad. Then we have to ask questions. Is Joe Madden simply sticking his finger in his ears and saying, unheard of, absurd, unthinkable? Who do you think you are? Not here, not now. Tradition. Or, and I think it's the or, or has he diligently considered, on the other hand, has he looked at it all objectively? He has known, he has been known, he has known and been known for decades, back when he was a manager in minor league baseball, to be an outside-the-box forward thinker. He pushed data and analytics. So whatever you're inclined to think about his views, understand that he's been formulating these views for a very long time. And as I mentioned, the interview is a must-listen. It's been a very hot topic of conversation over the past week. That took place early in the week. Something that may seem disconnected but is not took place or at least became official at the end of the week on Friday. Another very noteworthy change about the game of baseball was announced. I guess I should say changes because there are rule changes that officially now will take place or become in effect beginning in the 2023 season. Three major rule changes will go into effect next season's opening day. Now, there are a lot of details about these rule changes already in writing and many more details to be determined. But in brief, we've got a rule change that the bases will not be 15 inches square, but 18 inches. The goal is to have more action on the bases, more stolen bases, and the like. Infield shifts will be banned beginning next season. It will be required that there will be two infielders on each side of second base, and they must have their feet in the dirt. The third major change is a pitch clock. 
15 seconds will be allowed for a pitcher to deliver a pitch with nobody on base, 20 seconds with runners on. And the design and the goals of these are to increase the pace of play, to increase the action, to try to give fans an opportunity to see the outstanding athleticism of Major League Baseball players. And and I believe that these rules will probably help in these areas. However, that being said, I'm not a fan. Interestingly, neither were the four players on the committee. So there's an 11-member committee to approve rule changes. Four of those are players. Five of those are, or six of those, I'm sorry, are represented by ownership groups and one by an umpire. And all four of the players voted no on the banning of shifts and the pitch clock. And I agree with them. Now, infield shifts have been banned. Why? Well, because teams have done their due diligence with data and analytics, with tremendous information, and they've implemented a plan, and the plan worked. And now, they're being penalized. Now, of course, all teams are being penalized. It's equal in that way, but they're being penalized. And they're being penalized, from my perspective, because other people, in this case, the hitters, refuse to make an adjustment, or at least to attempt to make an adjustment. Go the other way. And somebody says, well, it's not that easy. No, it's not that easy. They're Major League Baseball players. Make the adjustment. At least try to make the adjustment. They really have no incentive to do so because of what they're rewarded for doing and what they're not rewarded for doing. But again, adjustments from my perspective, from Joe Madden's perspective, from anybody that I've ever been around in the game that's been in the game for any any length of time is what it is all about at the Major League level. So what are we seeing here? I think we're seeing what Joe Madden said. It's a socialistic version of baseball. Now, as it regards the pitch clock, I pitched rapidly between pitches. As a pitching coach, I encourage my pitchers to work quickly. I had one pitcher who works as quick as anybody in the game, Brent Suter. And so I'm firmly for that. I mentioned a while back in May when I was at a West Michigan Whitecaps game in Grand Rapids that they had the pitch clocks, and it definitely enhanced pace of play. And I'm all for enhanced pace of play for the sake of the game, and I'm all for enhanced working quickly pace of play for the pitchers because I think it's good for them. So I'm in favor of that, and I do think the rule change will bring that about. But I'm not in favor of how that goal is going to be reached. I don't like the idea of clocks in the baseball game. I don't care if there's a clock that tells you what time it is, but I'm talking about a pitch clock. And so I really wish there were some other means that had been implemented in effort to accomplish what I believe is a worthwhile goal. Now, I got to ask the same questions about myself that I asked about Joe Madden. Am I simply putting my fingers in my ears and saying, with Tevia, unheard of, absurd, unthinkable, Who do you think you are? Not here, not now. Tradition. Or have I diligently considered on the other hand? Well, the answer to that is no and yes. No, I'm not putting my fingers in my ears. No, I'm not crying out absurd and all of those things. Yes, to a degree. Now, one of the things I didn't mention about the rule changes was the limited step-offs and pick-offs to first per at-bat that a pitcher can make. But I do make every effort to look at it and to try to think through it. 
and I'm still thinking through that. I've, I've come to certain conclusions so far, but I'm still thinking through it. And I make every effort never to hold to tradition for tradition's sake. But I also try to make sure I don't easily disregard what's been handed down, in this case in baseball, handed down for some or all of 150 years of our national pastimes history. I sincerely try to maintain balance. And the same is true with church tradition. Right? Obviously, we cannot be guilty of invalidating the Word of God by our tradition. We can't be teaching as doctrine the tradition of men. But we should hold fast to the traditions in the sense of what Scripture commands us, handed down to us through the generations, and also tradition that has been handed down that may not be a command of Scripture, but flows from or flows out of Scripture. So the greatest theologians in history are all fallible human beings. The greatest theological documents of history outside of the Scripture are fallible. But if I am going to change, if Augustine and Anselm and Luther and Calvin and Warfield and Sproul and MacArthur all teach something, they can be wrong, no doubt about it. But I'm going to come to the conclusion they are wrong, and I am right, methodically, slowly, diligently. Now, as I came to the end of my presentation back in 2015 or so, I said to a large degree, we, and I'm speaking now to people developing minor league players, hopefully to become major league players, to a large degree, we know who we are and how to do our jobs well because of those who have gone before us. So again, to borrow a Christian phrase, standing on the shoulders of giants. But then I said, we cannot remain stagnant and unquestioning of all that's been handed down to us. And then I ended with these words. Balance is the key. It isn't easy, but without it, we'll break our necks. Then I asked, how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word, tradition. But that's a conversation for another day. Join us next time for In the Bullpen on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. Thank you for listening.